always uh, always get somewhere torn between kind of nervous and really fired up about the time that I get to stand up here because it's uh, it's such an awe filling task to come and share the Lord's word with you, and at the same time it's such an incredible joy and privilege to do so. So uh, it's awesome. Uh, go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, let's see. Here we go. Let me talk to you about what's going on in Houston and how we're responding as a church. We're going to be putting together some teams. Now, some stuff in South Louisiana too, by the way. Um, but we're going to be putting together some teams that will be going and helping and assisting. We've made contact with three different churches that are stages of operation for the relief effort, and we are working and coordinating with those three churches about where the most ideal setting for us to engage in. Um, we're also making sure that uh, we have logistical support when we get there. There's issues already of fuel shortages, food shortages, a lot of things like that. So we want to do a good job when we go down there. We're looking at doing some weekend trips where after work on Friday, a bunch of folks gather up, head on over, set up late Friday night, work all day Saturday, work all day Sunday, come back late on Sunday evening. We're also working on some longer trips as well, maybe some week-long work connecting in the same area also. If you want to give, there's many ways to give, but let me tell you some reliable ways to give. Giving directly through the North American Mission Board is one of the most effective ways because in that giving, 100% of what you designate for the relief, Harvey Relief, will go to Harvey Relief. It's not going to administration. It's not going to other things. It's going to relief. And so we're connected with the North American Mission Board. And if you want to give to them, you can go to their website and they'll tell you some ways. Their website's right there, sendrelief.net slash Harvey. Or you can give directly through Kingsville Baptist Church. Top line up there, make checks out to Kingsville Baptist Church and put NAMB Harvey in the memo line and on the envelope. Or... If you want to support the teams from our church that are going, similarly, if you want to help teams going from Kingsville, put KBC Harvey in the memo line and on the envelope. Now, let me tell you what we'll do with that money that's KBC Harvey. We will use it for the sending and equipping of teams from Kingsville to go and do this work. Anything left over will go directly to North American Mission Board, Harvey Relief. So we're not going to keep any of it. If we don't use what you give us that's marked for KBC Harvey, we will pass it on. But if you want to give directly to NAM, then you see what's in the red. And if you want to give to the church to do the relief, it's in the blue. I hope that that's clear. If you have any questions, drop me an email, send me a text. I'll be glad to clear that up or just give me a call. Happy to talk to you about that. Thank you that you're willing to go, willing to give. Already this week, really incredibly generous gifts given by our congregation to the relief effort. I'm just really excited to see what God has in store as he uses us to show what he is like to others. Now, if you want to be a part of that and want more information, let me give you one other way. You can just put your name 
on here and write, Harvey, give me some contact info. You can drop it in my hand on your way out today, any staff member's hand, or you can even put it on the men's ministry table or the Apostles' Creed book table over there, and it'll get to us. Fill that out and drop it off as well. We'll be really happy. Excellent. Thank you, Quinn. Drop, Put it in, drop it off, and we'll take you with us. Good job. All right. I love when volunteers just get up ready to go. That's a beautiful thing. Well, we've been talking about a really sensitive issue. We've been talking about human relations, human interactions, human interactions inside of people groups that have animosity toward each other, ethnic animosity, religious animosity, historical, political animosity. So what we're going to do is just catch us up from last week very briefly The story is in Luke chapter 10. Jump there. We're in verses 25 through 37. The story is known historically as the Good Samaritan. I think a better way to say it is the Merciful Samaritan or the Compassionate Samaritan. And it is a story about a man who wanted to go to heaven. And he's really interested in Jesus' answer about how to get to heaven. So he asks Jesus, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus says to this man who is an expert in the Bible. In Jesus' day, he would be considered a seminary professor. He is an expert in the Bible. And this expert wants to put Jesus on the spot. And he asks him, what do I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be sure I'm going to heaven? And so Jesus turns the question back on the man and says, well, what about you? You're an expert. How do you read it? And he answers with an answer that Jesus had previously given. He says, well, I read it this way. I read it that the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus said, you're right. Do this, and you will live. Well, knowing the Old Testament texts that both of these men would be familiar with, Jesus had referred him to a quote that jumps from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Jesus refers him to a miraculous work that God does And from that work, there's a promise that you will live. The work was that God would circumcise the hearts of people to make them able to love Him. And that by loving Him, they would live. And Jesus refers Him to a miracle. A miracle that the New Testament calls the new birth. Being born again being regenerated. And so Jesus connects these dots and it immediately pierces this man's heart because the man knows that there are obvious places in his life where he refuses to identify certain kinds of people as worthy of love. He has chosen groups of people that he has deemed 
unlovable. Everybody knows it because this was common in their day. There was an animosity between the Jewish people and Gentiles and Romans, particularly, and Jewish people and Samaritans. Now, the Jewish people and the Romans, their history was short. There was only a century or so of interaction, of domination that they had lived under, Greek and Roman interaction with them and the Roman domination that they were previous, uh, that they were at that moment in. But the history with the Samaritans was 800 years old. Now, I don't know how long you've ever kept up a fight with somebody, but if you could imagine keeping up a fight with somebody for 800 years. One of my favorite Andy Griffith episodes is the episode called A Feud is a Feud. And there's these two guys feuding, and Andy decides he's going to settle it because one of their sons wants to marry the other one's daughter. And the two families are feuding, and so there's this big controversy. So Andy decides that he's going to go and sit down with the fathers who are feuding and shooting at each other and ask them, why are you feuding? Well, if you're familiar with Andy Griffith, the hilarity of the episode is that it's sort of a remake of Romeo and Juliet. And the hilarity of the episode is that the men don't know why they're feuding. They say that the last one that could remember why they were feuding was their grandpa, and their grandpa didn't bother to tell them why. They just kept up the feud. Let me tell you something. In Israel, there was a feud between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was 800 years old, and they knew why. Follow me to about three slides ahead. Emily, there you go. One more. One more. Yeah, here's what it was. Their feud was about a separation that occurred all the way back after the time of Solomon. That separation had divided Israel into two kingdoms and some Worship centers had been built in the northern part of the country to take people away from Jerusalem in the southern part of the country. So there was sort of a north-south battle. That battle went on and it kept raging. And by the time it all comes to a head, it does so when Israel returns from captivity and the people in Samaria team up against the people in Jerusalem and try to prevent the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city walls. And a very, very painful conflict is inflamed. And that conflict just keeps on and on. It was about religion. The religion of one group said their religion was superior to the religion of the other group. It was about politics. Samaria always seemed to side with the enemies of Israel and give them trouble. It was about culture. Because they had been separated by ethnicity and by time and by distance, the cultures had developed very differently. It was about their ethnicity and how the Samaritans had intermarried with people from other people groups. And that intermarriage broke the law of God. It was about the Bible that they used. The Samaritans had one version. The Jews had another one. 
It was also about who was the true origin of the Jewish heritage. The Samaritans said that they were. The Jews said that they were. Now, Jesus affirms that the Jews are right in the theological battle of the origin of the truth and the proper scriptures and all of those things. But Jesus does not affirm that they're right in how they treat each other. There's this terrible feud that's just really brewed up, and so Jesus tells a story. And in that story, he does something really shocking. And next slide, Emily. He makes the Samaritan the hero of his story. Let me tell the story real quick. It's in Luke chapter 10. It says, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. By chance, a certain priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he had come to the place he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, boy, when he dropped that word, it was, it was on. A certain Samaritan, 800 years of conflict. A certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And on the next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Hey, take care of him. Whatever more you spend when I return, I'll pay you back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the man had to answer. It wasn't the answer anybody wanted. And so Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. Even though there's this ethnic, political, cultural, historical, 800-year-old reason for them to hate each other. Listen carefully. Jesus is telling a story of people who, in human reasoning, have a legitimate reason to hate each other. They do. In human reasoning, they are legitimately hateful to each other. I didn't say in God's reasoning. I said in human reasoning. All of the things that had gone on in their interaction, the abuses, the insults, the mistreatment. You don't have just years. You don't have just decades. You don't have just a century. You've got 800 years of something festering. You've got 400 plus years of just specific conflict. And all of this has made an expert in the Bible feel perfectly justified in hating other people. In fact, he feels so comfortable about it that he will take on Jesus over the issue. Think about it. Jesus is no stranger in this story. This is a guy that's been going around, and when he goes to funerals, dead people get out of the casket. Remember the story of the widow who had only one son and the funeral procession's going down the road and it passes by Jesus. Jesus looks on it, touches the casket. Dead guy just sits up. 
This is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the guy that raised a little girl from the dead. This is the one that cast out a thousand demons out of one man. This is the blind eye see. This is the lame walk. This is the deaf hear. This guy is so confident that he has the right to hate people that he will take on the Messiah over the issue. Listen, this is not foreign to North American culture. Can I tell you a story? A painful story? I hate to tell this story, but I'm going to tell a story. I debated whether or not I would, but I'm going to tell it. I was, uh, I'm, going to try to, I'm going to try to make it as gentle as I can. I was pastoring at uh, Parkway Baptist Church in Natchez, Mississippi. Very much racial tension in Natchez. Very much. Um, I actually met men in the church who used to sit on the church property with guns to keep black people off the property. I didn't hear that by second hand. I talked to the men who did it. Okay? So this was a lot of racial tension there. And I had a man come in to my office for counsel one day. He was a leader in a program we had called Awanas, Children's Ministry. Okay? Big deal there. He came in to talk to me. His daughter had um, entered a relationship with a person of another color. She was white. He was black. And she had conceived in that relationship as boyfriend and girlfriend. And he had taken his daughter to a clinic to terminate the life of what was conceived. And he looked across at me and he said, I believe God gave us abortion to get rid of things like that. This was a leader in the church. I'm not making this up. It's one of the few times in my life that I had to control myself. I'm not big. But I had to think carefully about not coming across my desk and just laying it on this guy. If you don't think that racial stuff is living in us as a human group. You're either in denial or you need to get out a little bit. This man felt so justified that he could tell that to his pastor. Confidently. So when we see this man take on Jesus, let's not just think this is ancient history. This kind of thinking still alive. Why did Jesus make the Samaritan the hero of his story? Next slide. Because ultimately, loving one's, in loving one's neighbor, none of it matters. None of the politics, none of the religion, none of the culture, none of the ethnicity. Ultimately, in loving your neighbor, you just have one requirement. They are a human being. They were made in the image of your God. That's it. 
And so if you think, if I think, if we think, we can justify hating or not loving anyone, Jesus is about to set it straight by using the least likely candidate as the hero of his story. And so we go to the next part of this. Next slide. Because there is no excuse for lovelessness. None. I don't know what you're packing today. But if you're packing an excuse for lovelessness, I'm hoping Jesus is going to unpack your bags and refill them with something really different. Because in this moment, Jesus blows up everybody's presuppositions that they are justified in hating or not loving certain people. My brothers and sisters, if we came here today with that justification, it is an unchristian belief. It is not from God and it will never be vindicated in His sight. So how do we deal with it? Well, Jesus does something in this story that's powerful and will help us. So here we go. Next slide. Thank you, Emily. Emily's just learning this craft, and I really am proud of her. Thank you so much. The story of the merciful Samaritan reveals the components of genuine love. Here we go. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to unpack love. He's going to say, this is what loving your neighbor actually looks like. You see, when it's theoretical, it's cool. Man, if, if loving is nothing more than me getting my wallet out and, and, and sending $10 to relief of some uncontacted person I'll never see, man, that, that's easy. If loving is writing a check, if loving is some comfortable deed with somebody I'm comfortable with, if that's what loving is, listen, it, that is nothing miraculous or spectacular. Jesus said... Anybody can greet the people that they like. Anybody can do that. The Gentiles, lost people, they do that. But there's a kind of love that Jesus is going to unpack here that blows us away. When I was studying this week, I want to tell you, I was stunned by two facts I'm about to share with you. First component of love is compassion. Write that down. Jesus says that The Samaritan, unlikely candidate, looked upon the Jewish man with compassion. Now, here's a secret. It's not a secret, but you had to dig to find this out. No one in the New Testament has this word used of them except Jesus and the Samaritan. When you read the Gospels... Nobody else is said to have had compassion. Only Jesus and the Samaritans. Not used with anybody else in the Gospels. Nobody else. None of the disciples. None of the other people. No one. It's only used to describe Jesus and the Samaritan. Now that in itself should shock us pretty big that the most unlikely guy is the most like Jesus in the Gospels. The most unlikely guy is the most like Jesus in the Gospels. 
We don't have 800-year-old, 450-year-old conflict with anybody. We don't even know what that's like. The United States has been here 200 and something plus years, 1776 to now. We're 250 headed that way. But think of people that you might think is likely candidates for this story. A German during World War II. A Japanese during World War II. A Muslim today. Somebody stepping out of a gay pride parade. Coming to Christ and being so changed that he's the first one to love a person who showed him hate before his conversion. A Muslim who had given his life to terror comes to Christ and becomes the first to show a suffering guy who had brought harm to him love and compassion. Unlikely. 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 That's exactly what Jesus has just done. He's not being theoretical. He's telling a real story. The story is the story of a man who comes to Christ and he's so changed that he loves his enemy. So, the glory of this picture is that He is like Jesus. And He looks and He has compassion. That's not all. At the end, the second component of love, because love is more than feeling. Far more than feeling. It's not ever absent of feeling, but it's far more than feeling. That's why in your outline at the top of it, it says, Sympathy is no substitute for action. A quote from missionary David Livingstone. No, there's something more here that's at work. What's at work here is not just that he felt something about the guy, but that he did something about the guy. That's where mercy comes in. This is another surprise. In the Gospels, The word mercy in the description of a person or a plea for a person is only used of God, Jesus, Abraham. Remember Abraham? You got the parable of the rich man, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man goes into the lake of fire and he cries out, Abraham, Father Abraham, have what? Mercy on me. Only in pleas to Abraham, pleas to God, pleas to Jesus. Jesus, the blind man, said, Jesus, have mercy on me. The sinner goes up to pray, the the tax collector, and he says, God, have mercy on me. So you get Abraham, you get God, you get Jesus, and there's only one other person who gets it in the Gospels. The Samaritan. Jesus does a double on us. He said, this guy is like me. In compassion. And he's like me in mercy. This is a stunning assessment. That the most unlikely guy is the guy who is most like God. So... 
The components of genuine love are compassion and mercy. They're a feeling, a sense that we have for other human beings, people made in the image of God, no matter what their state, no matter what their status, no matter what their situation. They were made in the image of God, and God so loved the world. But there's more to it. Number two, the story of the merciful Samaritan reveals the tangible evidence of genuine love. Now, what I did is I gave you something we can't fill out today. I want you to fill out later, but I'm just going to blow through it because it just pops out at me. And and you've got in your outline uh, about 10 or 11 spaces there. Let me just run through the tangible evidence of love. First, He came upon Him. Listen carefully. There will never be a day in your life as a believer that God is not orchestrating who you are about to come upon. God is front-loading your neighbors into your life right now. You're going to see somebody soon. God was orchestrating in the life of the Samaritan a neighbor, a person in need. God's doing that in your life already. And they may be your enemy. They may be someone who is abused, misused, hurt, has history with you, and they may be the one God is putting in the position to need to know what He is like, and you're going to be the one to inform that person what God is like. Second, He saw. Third, He felt compassion. None of this is in the outline, Emily. It's just written on paper. He felt compassion for him. He came to him. Think about this. Levite sees him, okay? And he... Priest sees him, same thing. They see him, they don't feel compassion. Now think about this. The three most likely candidates to be like God are the three least like God in this story. The expert in the law, the priest, and the Levite. They had the most theological training, the most church background, the most teaching about God, His nature, His history with Israel, His love, His compassion. All of those things they had grown up learning, and they see somebody, and they're the least like God. Samaritan comes along, and guess who he's like? He's like God. So, he comes to him. He bandages his wounds. He puts oil and wine on his wounds. That means he's touching a naked guy laying there, half dead, all beat up, and this guy's touching him. He breaks open the flask that he drinks out of, that he anoints his own self with, and he pours it on his enemy. And he loves on him, and he bandages the wounds, and he puts him on his own beast. That means he's going to do the walking now. He's not going to do the riding. Jericho Road's not an easy road. But he loads the guy up and puts him on. And he heads out toward the end. He gets to the end. He took care of him overnight. He stayed with him overnight. Think about that. Going to go get a hotel room, take care of this guy. He's beat up. Stay with him all night. Just make sure he's okay. What is he? He's my enemy. What am I? I'm God's representative. I'm going to show my enemy what God's like. So he took care of him. He gave two denarii. That's uh, two days' wages. Average um, wage in America right now is $51,000 per year. Break it down into working days. And essentially, he gave him 400 bucks. He'd already paid for the hotel stay and gave 400 bucks. 
<laughs> this is his enemy. In every conceivable way, he had a right to hate him in human reasoning. But he was like God. So he was doing God-like things. And he gave to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him and whatever you spend more in taking care of him, I'll be back by and I'll pay you off for what it costs to take care of him. So here is a story that shocks everybody who's listening. The story of the merciful Samaritan reveals the source of genuine love. Number three. You see, the loving God thing precedes the loving neighbor thing. And the Bible teaches a clear truth. We love God because He first loved us. The source that you and I have to love our enemies and do good to those who spitefully use us is not in our own resources. We're talking about a miracle. We're talking about God's love coming to us, dwelling in us, and moving through us. This is how we love our enemies. Jesus commanded it. He said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who spitefully use you. Enemies. And so Jesus is making sure that the man understands something. The power that he needs to do this is not his own. Otherwise, he wouldn't be trying to justify his lack of love. Jesus goes right for his heart. Now, I want you to think through with me for a minute. And Emily, don't change slides yet. This is... is, (laughs) This one hurt me. It came to me last night, and I had a little trouble sleeping. I woke up about four-something, and this was rattling around in my head. I'm hoping it's going to rattle in yours. Because something came to me that all of a sudden made the whole story make sense to me. Not that it wasn't already kind of making sense, but there was, it was just this thing that was lingering of what was Jesus after with this man. It was already obvious the guy hated Samaritans or he wouldn't be justified. So what's the guy really after? What does Jesus want from him? <laughs> and it dawned on me. Jesus was not answering the question, who was his neighbor? You think he is, but he's not. He's answering a different question. Because the man's answer had two parts. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the biggie. That's the thing. That's the foremost command. This is the deal. We love because He first loved us. You shall love the Lord your God. Why? Because He circumcised your heart and done a miracle in you. He has loved you and poured the gospel grace upon you of regeneration. This is all glorious. But the question He's after is not, who is my neighbor? Go ahead, Emily. Here's the, here's the question. He's asking Him who His God is. So, whoa, 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 whoa. 
Yeah. Because if you roll back to the beginning of the story, the man was wanting to justify himself. Only God can justify. The man was putting himself in the place of God and telling God and His Messiah who He was going to love and not love. This man had elevated himself above God. And what Jesus was digging at was not the lesser question of who is my neighbor, but who is my God. Because when God is your God, you will no longer need to justify yourself. You will know that it is God who justifies. When we want to justify ourselves, we're putting ourselves in the role of God. And we are saying, I can justify my actions. And so what Jesus has done is He's not pulled back the curtain on the neighbor issue. He's pulled back the curtain on the God issue. This man knew all the theology. He knew all the answers. He knew all the Scriptures. He knew all the teachings. He knew all the traditions. He knew all of the interpretations. But he did not know God. That was the problem. And this is where we have a problem. When we see to justify ourselves. We are putting ourselves in the place of God, in the role of God, saying, I can justify my actions. And what Jesus has done is He's dug down to say, God is not your God. You are. That's your problem. You have all the teachings. You have all the answers. You have all the rituals. You have all the practices. You're regular in them. You even know the right answer to salvation. But you don't know God. This is where Jesus was going. And this was why Jesus' demand was to do the impossible. My brothers and sisters, it is impossible to love our enemies. To feel compassion on our abusers, our misusers, our haters. That is not possible without a new heart. 
And a new heart is not possible without a new birth. And a new birth is not possible without coming to God and seeing how holy, righteous, pure, awesome, unapproachable that He really is. And to humble ourselves before Him and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner! And then through the miracle of the new birth, our new heart turns into a compassion for enemies and a mercy expressed on them that is totally unlike the rest of the world. It's miraculous. So, let me back this up with some Scripture. Roll for me, Emily. I've been teaching you over the last months about the greatest need of a human being is to know God. To know Him accurately, what He's really like. To know Him personally in a relationship. To know Him savingly through forgiveness and grace in Christ. To know Him intimately adopted as His son or daughter, entering into a relationship with Christ as a bride and a groom. But John just says it. We love because He first loved us. Back up a little bit, Emily. One more. Here we go. The one who does not love does not know God. Let's say that together. The one who does not love does not know God. What are the two components of love? Compassion and mercy. John... No holds barred, just says it. He just blurts it out. The one who does not love does not know God. This is the thing of knowing God is that we love. And go ahead to the second slide. The next one, Emily. Why? Because people who know Him begin growing in His likeness. They do. They put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see, when we come to know God, it changes us. He changes us, but He's changing us in His likeness. And here's what's happening. The, the, the lawyer, the, the Levite, the priest, they all claim to know God. And they walked right by a guy and said, I'm God's representative and this is what God is like. See ya later. They were lying about what God is like. And so when we come to know Him, there's this incredible event that happens in us where because He has loved us and shown us mercy and had compassion on us, because at some point in our lives, He found us dead in our trespasses and sins. But He didn't pass us by. <laughs> I was laying there dead in my transgressions. I was stripped naked like Adam and Eve in my shame. I wanted to cover myself and couldn't. But Jesus passed by. And He picked me up and He put me not on His animal. He put me on Himself and took me to the cross. And He bought me. With his own blood. We love because he first loved us. We show what God is like. This is your job. This is my job as a Christian. This is it. 
We go to people and we say, this is what God is like. I'm His representative. Let me show you. Think that through. We go to people and we say, this is what God is like. I'm His representative. Let me show you. And right now, I'm going to love you. Now, loving means truth. Don't go thinking Jesus doesn't tell everybody He loves the truth. But love has compassion and mercy with that truth. And so, question, 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 quick. Can we, as a church, um, can I, as a person, go out today through these doors? Go to Los Portales, Dale, y'all going today? Y'all going? Not sure? Y'all did Subway a couple of weeks ago. That's off. Who's going to Los Portales today? Anybody? Where where are y'all going to eat today? Who's going home to eat? Okay. Who's going out to eat? A few of you. Okay. Well, let me tell you, whether you go home or whether you go out, you're leaving today as God's representative. You're about to walk out this door to say to this world, I am God's representative. Let me show you what He's like. The Samaritan is the best non-Jesus example in the Gospels of exactly what God is like. And he tells the story this way to shock us into the reality that God's salvation can come to anyone and it can do the impossible. So I want you to bow with me for a second. My question for you today is... Not who is your neighbor. (laughs) But it's the question I had to ask myself in the night. And that question was, who is your God? Is it you? Did you show up today to justify yourself? Are you justifying sinful actions? Justifying sinful behaviors? Informing God that you know better than Him? Ready to take on Jesus face to face and said, uh, Let me explain. Uh, uh, who is my neighbor? Come on, tell me. Or, could we today look at God and say, God, You are my God. I, because of Your redemption, I'm, I'm, your, rev- I'm your representative. You've sent me. (laughs) And I am going to go out into this world and I'm going to meet people and I am going to be like you. And so, God, that's my prayer today. Because of my salvation in Jesus Christ, because of my redemption, because of my forgiveness, because of your compassion on me, because of your mercy on me, here's what I'm doing today. I am going to be like you. And so I need some help. I need some help because I'm so not like you. I need help. And I know that one of the chief reasons, God, you've left me here on this earth is because you want people to know what you're like. And so you're sending me. You're going to connect me in my home with my family today. And I'm going to show what you're like to my kids. 
to my wife, to my husband, to my parents. I'm going to show what you're like. I'm going to show what you're like to my neighbors. I'm going to show what you're like to the nations. That's what I'm going to do, God. No, God, I'm so unlike you. I'm going to put on you the new self, which in the likeness of God is filled with righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's my prayer, God. So I pray that. Here I am. Send me. I'm your rep. Show me somebody today that I can show what you're like. I'll do it. I'm all in. Some of you, you're here today and you're saying, this is so impossible. It's so impossible, Bart. You're talking about things about loving people who've hurt us, loving people who've threatened us, loving people who've, who've, who've promised harm against us. You're talking about that. How do we do that? The new birth. If you could just understand how God has had compassion on you when you were His enemy. If you would just understand how He's shown mercy to you when you or disobedient to Him. And how in Christ He invites you to come and be saved, be forgiven, and to know Him. Would you do that today? Would you give your heart to Christ? Pray with me. God, you're asking the impossible. But I've heard this good news that Jesus did what I need to make the impossible possible. That He died for my sins and was raised from the dead. So God, today, I believe that. And I embrace Jesus and the love you've shown me through Him. Forgive me of my sins. Save me. Make me your representative. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. I pray that in Jesus' name. As God works in your heart today, would you stand? As God moves you, would you respond to Him?